The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and this Advent season. We come today in the already but not yet of your joy. This world of sin and brokenness and counterfeit joy threatens to steal our true joy in you. But to us, a son is born, and on us, his light has shone. May we see that light. May we see your son, Jesus, as our never-failing source of joy. May the lights on the tree, the colors of the paper, and the happiness of a gift always point us back to the promise of deep, everlasting joy with you. Be with us this Christmas season, and may our joy rest deeply in you. Repair all these things in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, as we come to your word, our hope is that you will use your word to help us to know Jesus, our salvation, more fully, to love him more deeply, to receive him into our hearts and lives more fully. And we pray that you would strengthen our longing and our expectation for his return. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I'm sure we have all heard the phrase, the adage before, be careful what you wish, you might just get it. Probably more than one of us has actually experienced the truth of that adage before. I remember one Christmas, our oldest son, Caleb, had presented us with his Christmas list, and on that list were a couple really expensive gifts. And we sat and explained to him that we spend the same amount of money on all of our children, more or less, and if he wanted these expensive gifts, it meant that he would get less gifts than his brothers. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I know, I get it. And I'm like, are you sure you're going to be okay with that? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, I really want these expensive headphones and this brand new video game that just came out. Okay. I can still see the look of disappointment on his face when he was done opening gifts and his brothers were still going to town. And I can still feel that burning desire in my chest to say, I told you so. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What made that Christmas extraordinarily disappointing to him was the fact that the video game he was so excited to play, I bought the wrong version. So it had to be shipped back and the right version purchased. So that was a very disappointing Christmas for Caleb. You know, it's often that our 
expectations aren't met. Rarely do things, vacations, gifts, meet our expectations. Well, Simeon and Anna were two people who had been waiting for Christmas for a very, very long time. But they were not in the slightest disappointed with their gift. Anna is so thrilled with her gift that she runs around telling everyone who will listen. And Simeon is so overjoyed, so happy, he says, I'm now ready to die. You ever been that happy with a Christmas present? Uh, The stories of Simeon and Anna are told in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 22. So if you have a Bible or one in front of you there in the the chairs, uh, I invite you to turn to Luke 2, starting in verse 22. And these stories happen, they unfold, when Jesus is about six weeks old, maybe a day or two short of six weeks old. In these chapters, Luke gives us uh, three snapshots, if you will. Three snapshots of things as they ought to be. The first snapshot is of Mary and Joseph. And they give us this beautiful picture of devout obedience and humble submission. You've seen their humble submission all through the Christmas story, starting when Mary says to the angel, let it be to me as you have said. You see it in Joseph's refusal to dismiss or divorce Mary, but keep her as his bride, his betrothed. You see it even in the naming of their son. He's not Joseph Jr., or named after their favorite uncle Tito. He's named Jesus because that's what they were instructed. And here they are at the temple dedicating Jesus, presenting him to God, saying, he's yours, he's consecrated to your service. We submit to your will for his life. But in these few verses, what is really kind of honed in on is their submission to the law, and their devout obedience to the law. Five times in these verses, the phrase the law of Moses or the law of the Lord is used to describe uh, their obedience to it. It starts in verse 21. We get this, this focus on their obedience to the law that really centers around three ceremonies they are observing. In verse 21, it's the ceremony of circumcision, which is performed eight days after the child is born, on the eighth day. Jesus is circumcised according to the law and given the name Jesus. Then, 33 days after that, in verse 22, there is the ritual of purification. In Jewish custom, a woman who had given birth was unclean for 33 days and needed to present a sacrifice of uh, cleansing, usually a lamb or a dove, or if you were poor, two doves. And here in this text, Jesus is identified with those among the poor. The sacrifice is offered of two doves. And then in verse 23, there's the the third ceremony, the dedication of the firstborn, which has its roots all the way back in the time of Exodus when the Lord had 
said to Israel, the firstborn belongs to me. And so Mary and Joseph are there performing their duties, performing all that the law had commanded. And verse 39 kind of sums all of that up. They performed everything according to the law of the Lord. Luke is trying to show us that they were observant, completely faithful in their obedience to what the law required. Now, when you and I, 21st century, low church, free church evangelicals, hear words like law and ceremony, ritual, performance, obedience even, it can maybe be a little bit off-putting. It sounds a little bit too much like the R word, religion. And we have told ourselves that Christianity isn't a religion. It's a relationship. That is a highly problematic distinction. In her great book, Holy Unhappiness, Amanda Held Opelt pushes against that distinction. She says, of course Christianity is a relationship. It involves intimacy with God our Father and Jesus through the Spirit, but it is also very much a religion. It can't be separated from its creeds, its institutions, its ethic, its rituals, its traditions. It's not DIY spirituality. It's deeply connected to these forms and structures. She says, we err grievously when we emphasize the individualistic experience of faith over the communal practice of faith. Faith is not primarily a feeling. It's an act of choosing, an undertaking of obedience. So when feelings fade, when we don't feel close to God and that intimacy doesn't seem to be there, we hold on to the structures and to the forms. She says, again, liturgical practices serve to operationalize holy habits into our daily rhythms. They act as a divine safety net. I love that phrase, liturgical practices serve to operationalize holy habits. It reminds me of the years that I spent practicing martial arts. You didn't know that about me, did you? So through junior high, high school, even into college, I was pretty involved in the martial arts. My dad taught a form called Tung Sudo in our church as an outreach to the community, and we would go every Saturday morning. And of course, being a young guy, I wanted to get in there and spar. But what we did, Hyung's. Forms, and other forms are called katas. Just repetition after repetition of these movements. The goal was that they would become so habitual that if you needed to use them, they were there as a part of your memory bank. So too are these liturgical practices. Through periods of uncertainty or confusion or dark nights of the soul, when it feels like it's been 400 years since you've sensed God's presence, structures and forms, creeds and liturgies, they become anchors for us. When you don't know what to do, you obey and you keep moving. Mary and Joseph provide us a great picture of devout obedience and humble submission. The second snapshot is of Simeon. Simeon gives us a picture of patient waiting and joyful reception. 
The story is that Simeon was a righteous and devout man. He's included in the, that kind of category with Elizabeth and Zechariah, John the Baptist's parents, and, and Mary and Elizabeth, Mary and Joseph, devout, waiting, righteous. He was waiting, it says, for the consolation of Israel, the comfort that would come from God to Israel. Because that's highlighted in him, we can assume that that was a rare thing among God's people at the time. Few were still longing and waiting for it. They might give lip service to it, but really their focus had shifted to more maybe political solutions, more pragmatic answers. They were just going about their day, and they had forgotten the longing and the waiting for this consolation. But Simeon had the Holy Spirit upon him in a profound way, and he had a special revelation given to him that he would not pass away. He would not die until his eyes had seen God's salvation, his anointed one, the Messiah. And on that day when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple to be presented, the Holy Spirit moved him to go to the temple. And there Simeon sees Jesus with a different set of eyes, eyes informed by faith. And he goes up to Mary and takes baby Jesus. You hope he asked first, but we don't know. And he says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all the nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. My eyes have now seen what you promised, your salvation. Now you can dismiss me in peace. When I was growing up, we lived in Florida for a number of years, and my grandparents were in New York, and they would drive down periodically, not often, to Florida to, to be with us. And when we knew they were coming, we would sit on these window boxes and look out the windows, just waiting for the headlights to come up the drive. Now, this was before cell phones, so we knew vaguely what time they'd be coming. Monday evening. So we would wait from 7 till whenever they got there, just staring out the window. And they'd get there late at night, and we would greet them and then say, can we now go to bed? I'm tired. Or it's like my kids, when they were young, New Year's Eve, they wanted to stay up till midnight, and when 12.01 hit, can we go to bed now? That's the impression you get from Simeon. He's been waiting long, faithfully keeping a lookout. And now his eyes have seen it, and he says, can I go to bed now? <laughs> Your servant can depart in peace. I'm ready. J.C. Ryle comments on this, and he says, He speaks like one for whom the grave has lost its terrors and the world its charms. Simeon's reception of Jesus is really as it should be among God's people, receiving him with joy Simeon remained hopeful in his waiting, still listening and sensitive to the voice of God. 
When other people had stopped listening, stopped expecting to hear from God, he was still there, sensitive to how the Spirit was prompting. Now for us, we are not likely to get a special revelation from the Spirit like Simeon did. But God still speaks to us through his word, through his spirit, and we ought to come expectantly to it, waiting to hear from God and longing for the day when our faith becomes sight. The third snapshot we get is of Anna. Anna is faithful in her constancy and thankful in her witness. Uh, I dare say life did not turn out for Anna as she had envisioned. Anna was married probably at a young age, remained married for seven seven years, and then her husband passed away. There's ambiguity in the text whether Anna had been married for seven years and now she was 84, having spent that entire time as a widow, or if she had been married for seven years and widowed for 84 years. Either way, she lived as a widow for a very, very long time. And Anna leaned into her piety. It says never leaving the temple, certainly a hyperbole, but spending her days worshiping and fasting and praying Now, her method is certainly not required of all of us. We are not required to stay in the sanctuary all day. Please don't. I want to go home and get lunch eventually. But her attitude is, her attitude of expectancy, of constant prayer. And like the shepherds, when Anna met Jesus, it says she she went around telling everyone who would listen wasn't a duty. It was part of the joy of having met Jesus to go and introduce others to the redemption of Israel. Now in these three snapshots, Luke is giving us a picture of the way things ought to be. Don't miss what Luke is doing here, okay? This has been a dark period in Israel's history often referred to as the 400 years of silence. But during this dark period, Luke is reminding us God still had his people. Yes, there was 400 years when God wasn't seemingly doing anything new, but he still had his people who were persisting in obedience. There's 400 years without a new prophecy But there were still people watching and waiting, hoping for God's promises to come to fruition. Yes, there had been 400 years of quietness, but there were still those listening for the Spirit, searching God's Word. Luke is saying this old era of of waiting is passing away, and God is on the move. He's doing something new. He is bringing that salvation to us. There's a lot we can learn from Anna and from Simeon, from Mary and Joseph. But there's one really important thing, the most important thing. They received Jesus. Consider the main actors in this story again. 
we're given really very few, few details about them. What about Mary? Was she pretty? Did she come from a good family? But Joseph, was he handsome? Was he attentive? What did he do for a living? Oh, he was a carpenter. Yeah, we know that from Mark, but not from Luke. He doesn't give us that detail. What about Simeon? How old was he? We assume he was old, but the text doesn't tell us. Uh, What was his lineage? Who was his father? Was he from a good family? What did he do? Was he a priest? We don't know. Was he respected? Don't know. We're given more details about Anna. She was the son, or no, she wasn't. She was the daughter of Penuel from the tribe of Asher. She was old. She was widowed. Did she have any kids? Don't know. How'd she care for herself? Don't know. Not important. What is important? They received Jesus. Even what we do know about them, their obedience, their piety, their waiting, their patience, put bluntly, it's nothing without Jesus. The main lesson that Luke wants us to see here is that to see Jesus is to see salvation. To know Jesus is to know salvation. To receive Jesus is to receive salvation. The promise of salvation had been first given back in the garden to Eve when God said to her, your offspring will destroy the work of the serpent, crush his head. And that promise weaves its way through Eve's descendants, through Seth, through Noah, through Shem, through Abraham, where we're given more details about what that promise will look like. It's expanded, and the promise isn't just for Abraham and his family, but for all the nations. And the promise continues winding its way through God's people, through Israel, through foreigners like Rahab and Ruth, through humble men like Jesse and kings like David through high points in Israel's history and low points like exiles and oppressive occupation. And the promise finds its way to Mary, who gives birth to a son, who gives birth to salvation. And Simeon, when his eyes fall on this child, recognizes this is the child of promise. This is God's salvation. He says, this is the light to the Gentiles and glory to Israel. Anna, when her eyes fall on Jesus, she recognizes him as Israel's redemption. The main thing, they recognized, they received Jesus. So it begs the question, Have you received Jesus? Have you recognized him as your salvation, your hope? That's different than knowing stories about Jesus. It's even 
different than just believing the stories are true? Have you received him as God's gift to you, your Savior? I I wish that everyone would experience that. That is the way things ought to be. But Luke also reminds us in this that it's not as things are. Not all who will meet Jesus will receive him. Jesus forces a decision upon us. Luke's focus in this, up to this point in the gospel has been on glory and greatness, on Jesus' kingship and his lordship, on blessings and peace. We've seen faithful people like Zechariah and Elizabeth. We've seen angels proclaiming the good news to shepherds, and they receive it with joy. They're in awe. We see God doing miracles. One of my favorite stories at this period is John the Baptist, while he's still in the womb, leaping for joy at the very presence of Jesus, who is also still in the womb. Luke's included songs of worship and praise, thanking God for his deliverance. But here, in the story of Simeon, we get the first words that indicate that it's not going to be all sunshine and roses. Verse 34, this child, he says to Mary and to Joseph, is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too, Mary. The rising and falling of many. He'll be opposed. Some who should receive him with joy will treat him with ambivalence or worse, hostility. Jesus forces a decision upon us. For some, he is the consolation of Israel, light to the nations, salvation incarnate to others, a stumbling stone, a rock of offense. Today, if there is any deep longing in your heart for consolation, for comfort that this world cannot satisfy, it's because God is preparing you to recognize and receive the gift in Jesus. Jesus is the consolation, the comfort that the world needs. Don't look for it anywhere else. As you celebrate Christmas this year, I pray you celebrate it as someone who has received Jesus, believing in him, trusting in him for your salvation, your comfort, your hope in life and in death. Will you pray with me? Father, we are grateful. We're grateful that all of your promises are yes and amen in Jesus. We pray that we would look to him as the one who will not disappoint our expectations. It doesn't mean life will always be good and easy, but we have a sure confidence in eternal life with you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.